You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 27th of July 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London on Monocle 24. I'm Emma Nelson, and on today's show, Eritrea ends its lifetime conscription policy to the relief of thousands. But we'll ask how much military service can do for a man, a woman and a country. Polishing their shoes and paying attention will be the Monocle Squadron, Josh Fennett, Matt Allegaia and Melkin Chartoglian. They'll be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including as the mercury scales the heights in London, Stockholm and Japan, we ask what hot weather does to a city and to the brains of the people who write about it in the news. We also examine whether Germany will ever sort its immigration issues out. And... How many times has Hunt's government betrayed him, disavowed him, cast him aside... How long before a man like that has had enough? Good question, and who cares? This summer blockbusters are given the once-over as the latest film in the Mission Impossible franchise is released. But we should be asking, should we all off doing something more fun instead? That's all to come on Midori House with me, Emma Nelson. And a very warm welcome to the programme. My guests today, Josh Fennett, Matt Allegaia and Melkin Chachoglian. Welcome, one and all, to the programme, gentlemen. Now, one of the world's most authoritarian nations, Eritrea, has abandoned its policy of lifelong conscription for its citizens. It's a welcome announcement for the thousands of men who find themselves signed up to the military for decades and is one of the main reasons why people flee the country. But while handing ourselves over indefinitely to the military is not a desirable prospect, other nations still believe one or two years' national service is still a necessary part of growing up. So where can the balance be found? Well, Matt, let me begin with you. The reaction to Eritrea was one of universal welcome, wasn't it? Because it's a, a thing that has crippled the country and crippled the population for so long. Yeah, absolutely. I think kind of a permanent draft is something so unusual. And, and I think Eritrea has probably made the right decision here. It was a reason why we saw so many young men leaving the country and fleeing uh, over the Mediterranean, trying to get to Europe. Because I think, you know, we, we've seen a sort of huge growth in the number of, uh, of, of young men from Eritrea, specifically going to, to Lampedusa and places like that. And I just think, um, you know, it, it's, an, it's a law that kind of goes back to uh, obviously the time when it seceded from uh, Ethiopia and the 30-year war before that. So it, it was obviously there for a good reason at some point, but I think now is probably the right time. And you do have Eritrea at the moment almost on a um, sort of soft power drive. You know, it's been in talks with various large international broadcasters about doing debates there and opening up. But when you have a country which is fundamentally tightly controlling the people who live there it's very difficult for people outside to have much sympathy for them and to actually say okay yes I will engage with you yeah, absolutely. I don't think its brand is is sky high, to be honest, outside. I, I think lots of people think of it as a bit, a, bit of an authoritarian place, as you said. Um, Josh, I mean, your thoughts on, on conscription, the idea that, um, you know, the young Josh Fennett, age 16, 17, a little bit wet behind the ears, would be packed off to the army for a couple of years to sort himself out. How would you have felt about that as a young man? Well, it would have been one career in magazines or another, I suppose, in some sense, if you'll forgive the pun. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, just to go back to Matt's point about the seriousness of this, I think um, 
What happened in Eritrea is that this was military conscription, but it was for a war that wasn't really happening, a war that had gone cold for many years. And a lot of these people were recruited to do things like build, you know, fill in potholes and stuff. So there is a non-military element to what's going on here. The authoritarianism is there. But these people were used uh, basically as a giant kind of works program, as free labor. You know, any man between the age of 18 and 50 indefinitely conscripted to, to build things in a country that needed things building. So you could say that it's fairly capricious, you know, as things start looking a little bit better for Eritrea and it teeters towards uh, more acceptable behaviour, it's actually kind of got the benefit of enlisting all of these men to do that. As for conscription, I wouldn't be up for it myself, Emma. They announced this, what, a little while ago, um, Malcolm, that the, the Eritreans were going to drop um, lifetime conscription and were going to replace it with an 18-month programme instead. Um, and then immediately the likes of Amnesty International said, yeah, right. Um, and of course, you know, nothing happened in terms of you know the effect on on a, on a young nation uh, facing uh, you know your future and in the hands of the military um you have friends who have been sent to the military haven't they to do their their national service what are their what's their experience like um well just to for our listeners so i uh, am armenian but grew up in russia so i have a lot of friends who served in the armenian army but there's a, a short sort of nine month conscription there and same thing in russia about nine to twelve months um it is a universally unpleasant experience as far as things go there's systematic bullying um you people don't have that sense of civic duty which is necessary to a successful uh conscription mechanism uh people come back with you know if they did have problems they come back further entrenched in those problems um uh, so you know some of my friends would come back you know, pretty much depressed. Um, I, I don't know anyone who has had a good time. I know people who have, who have you know, dodged conscription, haven't been able to return to Russia for many years um, and have to wait until they're 27 years old, after which, you know, the conscription mandate expires uh, to, to go back to Russia and kind of, you know, visit their relatives and their friends. Um, but let's not forget that there are two types of conscription. Um, there's, for example, the Finnish kind, where you do six months. Um, if you don't want to actually, you know, serve in the army, you can do something like ambulance service, some sort of civic good where you pick up lifetime skills, you make friends, um, you know, you're, you're treated well and everyone feels like, you know, a compatriot in arms. You're not there to be bullied, have your head shaved and be, you know, cleaning some officer's toilet for six months and come back, you know, utterly, utterly empty. You're nodding there, um, Josh, at the idea of um, what Malcolm was saying there. Civic duty is entirely absence. Um, in 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 terms of the the way that some young men are bullied when they get put into into the army, but to introduce an element of civic pride does a tremendous amount to a nation, doesn't it? I think um, I think it does, and I'm not here speaking in favour of conscription, but in 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 times where governments are more tetchy than ever, when discussions of how much of our GDP goes towards the armed forces, and when there is a bit of a sense, particularly in places like Finland, where Russia is so close at hand, that a sense of Finnish identity can be fostered by you know, knowing how to clean a rifle, say, knowing how to bivouac somewhere. I don't think it's always necessarily a bad thing. And, you know, two of our colleagues from the Monocle offices, one former colleague, um, did conscription and enjoyed it. So a guy in Singapore where there's still mandatory uh, military service, he says that it's something that the generations joke about over time. 
and that they enjoy and that they feel has a, a you know a sense of nation building about it so uh, I'm not entirely sure if it's always a good thing but there is a possibility for it to be more pleasant than uh, the way Malcolm has discussed it well so let's not forget that France at the end of last month brought back or rather planned to bring back conscription this was one thing that was um, on Macron's list of things he wanted to do and, and he's now kind of doing it um, but that again is not kind of military conscription in the way we're, we're sort of talking about it it's it's more of a sort of like Tivildeans they used to have in Germany before they abandoned it um, and it's all about kind of creating more social cohesion you know it's about people from various different backgrounds in a very stratified country um, coming together and, and actually doing something you know for the good of the country I think it's I, I quite like the idea of doing that actually because we are seeing you know communities having quite a lot of breakdown in, in places like France and, and the UK certainly and that kind of thing can help I think there is this issue that, it, it, as you just just pointed out there, the uh, France and, and Emmanuel Macron has decided that he's going to bring back a kind of national service. It isn't the national service that some of my friends went and did a few years ago in France, where literally they packed up their bags one day and you'd say goodbye to them for several months and they'd come back a different man. You know, head shaved, gaunt eyes. They'd seen stuff and, and witnessed stuff that, that frankly no teenager should have to go through. But the kind of stuff that Emmanuel Macron's talking about is voluntary teaching and working with charities um, as well as traditional military preparation. And then you get the issue of you, you're only in for a month or in for three months. Now, that surely is something that we could look at for everywhere. Perhaps. I don't think it is for everyone. I think there are possible elements of social cohesion that can work. But, you know, if you're a conscientious objector, I completely disagree with someone dragging you off to learn how to clean a gun or whatnot. There might be a sector of society for whom vocational skills can be gleaned, a sense of confidence and camaraderie and teamwork can be uh, heightened. Um, but I don't think it should be coercive, and I don't think decisions about what you know the way you spend your time should always be uh, should always be used in this way, and particularly geared towards military service. Matt, there's also an argument that you shouldn't it shouldn't just be for young people. I think there's there's this idea that conscription should only be for people at the age of 18, whereas. When you look at generational kind of difficulties in, in societies we have, it might be quite a nice idea to have someone, you know, sitting in the same program with a 60-year-old and they're an 18-year-old and actually learning what it's like to be a 60-year-old now um, instead of having just everyone at the age of 18 going and doing something. In terms of what, linking generations, so that when, you, when they talk about this employment gap that people experience in their 50s and 60s when they realise they don't feel relevant anymore, to go in and start doing something like that, that could be an option. Yeah. Um, I just also want to say that the... Conscription works in countries, for example, like Finland and Sweden, is because it's by nature a defensive form of conscription. These are countries with no, you know, recent history of imperialism or uh, overt belligerence. Uh, that therefore the global community could look look on it as a good thing, as a, as a as almost a responsible thing to do. Uh, but if for, in Russia, you know, Russia is a, an imperialist country and, and has been forever. That's why conscription there simply cannot be uh, processed and perceived in the same way as it is in Finland. 1810 here in London. You're listening to Midori House with me, Emma Nelson. Now, spare a thought for the last-minute holiday sales teams working in the UK. It's been hot here in the United Kingdom for several weeks now. Lawns are parched and straw-like, and local news teams have been doing stories about unbearable temperatures on the London underground and why it's boom time for ice cream shops. And there's, shops, and there's also a warning of a forthcoming carrot shortage. How have you been keeping cool, Josh Pennett? Um, I don't think I have. I think, you know, I don't know the medical name for it, but I was basically born a degree too warm, so I'm too hot year-round. So I reserve most of my moaning for when things are too hot. But 
There is something that I have been thinking about ever since I visited the Venice Architecture Biennale earlier this year, where there were great shows of how people in extremely hot countries use uh, cheap and effective architecture to counter the heat. And, you know, if global temperatures rising, even by a little bit, is going to be something, I really do think that there should be a debate uh, in the urbanism realm and in the architecture realm about how we keep our cities a little bit cooler and how we build sensibly. So there are a couple of examples, you know, you can paint the roofs white, you can allow space for air to move between buildings. But also there's a, something that's being discussed by the architecture community at the minute, which is that glass and steel skyscrapers are raising the temperatures of our cities and raising the temperatures within flats, you know, to, to unreasonable levels. And unfortunately, you often get headlines around this type of time of year, and particularly at the moment in Japan, about... Uh, the elderly suffering extremely badly in such heat. Who's doing it well then? Um, I don't think anyone's doing it well. Is the uh, is the fairly uncompromising view that I've decided to take just this minute. Um, <laughs> what what I think is that, like infrastructure, you know, when you think about architecture and master planning, it's not you're not going to build it now for next year. You've got to build it for five years, ten years time. But I was in Ireland two weeks ago, and the asphalt and the roads were melting. There were. Um, you know, headlines about the, the train tracks bowing. And I just think, it's 30 degrees, guys. You know, surely you've built these things to run within the temperature range that may conceivably be here. And now we're all facing up to a, a slightly longer-term view that perhaps the built environment, it needs to be pleasant for the people operating in it and not always just for the developers and on the look of the render. Matt, it is an issue, isn't it, of... Um the quality of life of a city palpably alters when it gets hot, doesn't it? And the rhythm of a, of a city alters. People actively avoided taking the central line in London this week because temperatures were hitting, what, 97 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in new money. Um, and, and there were all these amazing stories about, um, you know, how people were being subjected to illegal levels of temperature as they went about their daily life. It forces a city to slow down, doesn't it? It, it does. I'd actually love to see a kind of a, a map of how London's kind of reshaped by the heat because I bet you many more people go and walk down by the river rather than zigzagging through the back streets of central London and I'm sure as you say people are avoiding the central line like the plague because it's for some reason no one's been able to explain this to me but it's about two degrees hotter than every other line in London. Well apparently it's because there's no air conditioning on it and I was jokingly told and I'm not entirely sure how serious this is that we will get air conditioning on the central line by what year? 2030? A bit later. I saw that. I think it might even be 2040. Oh my god. So there we go so as if we'll be really carrying that much <laughs> so, so these infrastructure things like I said I think there's a, a serious point to be made there as well these things take a lot of time to go through you know when people are talking about uh, connecting places by rail you get it in 10-15 years time but we should be thinking about it now and just one other thing when you're talking about the air the level of air pollution in London is a big issue we're starting to see a bit of signage with it you know the mayor is hatching plans again for a few years off but I'm right behind it because the air pollution levels, I believe, yesterday in London were the highest they've been in an extremely long time. And that can be helped by the built environment, giving the air space to move between buildings, giving pedestrians places to walk that aren't on main roads. Um, so I think there's a serious thing to be discussed alongside the, uh, the, the being a bit hot sort of things. <laughs> the, not to kind of skip over to the winter season you know, too soon, but I remember a few years back when there was an incredibly heavy snowstorm and you know, the government didn't have enough bulldozers to clean the streets, the, you know, the tracks in the airports. Um, they said, oh, we, we simply don't have the mechanism to cope with this such unprecedented snowfall. It happens every year and it's going to keep on happening. Therefore, just said, it's a very long-term plan. It means planting trees to create shade on streets. And you know, we sing the praises of Tokyo over and over again. But really, for example, if you get in a tube there, 
even though it's 35 degrees every summer, it's it's an incredibly pleasant experience being on the tube there. We need, however, Josh, and you're talking about urbanists rethinking the way that we build our, our homes and what have you, but it is an immediate problem, isn't it? And and it's very difficult to quickly fix issues like being unable to sleep at night without having to go and buy an air conditioning issue. Um, it's going to cost an awful lot of money and arguably heat waves like this don't come around very often. I think um, I, I completely agree with you. So as long as um, the healthcare infrastructure and the transit infrastructure are OK, I'm not too fussed if you're not sleeping well. I don't think that's a big problem that we all need. To, I think people uh, who talk about productivity might tend to differ with you because apparently it drops quite a lot when we're terribly hot and tired. I'm sure it does. But I think that some of the issues are very structural. For instance, you mentioned the, the, the panic buying of fans. Everyone then plugs into the grid which means blackouts are more likely, which means you you and I might not sleep very well. We sleep in separate rooms for the listeners, just so you know. All in Midori <laughs> House in a, in, a series of, in a series of bunk beds. We all live together. It's, uh, have, you not, no, have you not designed the Midori House dormitory? Well, that's why it's called Midori House, because we all just live here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the, the <laughs> sketch, sharing our fans. The sketches are underway. But, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, as long as there is a an infrastructure in place that means we can all plug our fans in and the lights don't go out at the hospital looking after the most needy people... I think those are the kind of considerations we need to make around the heat. And, you know, there, there is some levity to, you know, to it and you get some funny headlines, but also you get some more tragic headlines. And I think people should be just watching from far off to, to see how we handle these these seriously important issues. How do other cities do it? I mean, we, in in London, we've had the Hampstead bathing pond being a great thing. And, you know, the natural open water being the place where people go and cool off in something which frankly I wouldn't throw my worst enemy into um, I don't know if you've smelt it but I don't know some people love it um, but other cities really do public bathing and public cooling down places incredibly well don't they Matt? They do I mean you look at kind of Zurich or Copenhagen these places where there's a lot of water just in the middle of the city and it's really really clean that's the other thing like we have a lot of water but it's kind of completely filthy fetid the, yeah the Thames you wouldn't go swimming in that but you know Copenhagen has the sea coming right into the centre of the city and it's always such a nice place to go and chill off and they've done it really well you know they've built these kind of wooden jetties out into the sea and it just makes such a difference because people can go and cool off if they need to and you do see people just you know, rocking up after work and, and going for a swim favorite place to go and cool down in the urban areas malcolm well i mean definitely not the terms because it actually turns out as i think it has a minus net migration so whatever we dump into it actually heads back down towards Richmond. Uh, but I live next to Greenwich Park, and that's a wonderful open expanse, expanse with actually with wonderfully shady trees in certain areas, so I'll just go sit there under the shade and, and cool off that way. Yes. I wish we had a lead near my house, but we don't. Suddenly the town planners realise that they should have let the trees stay. Mm. You're listening to Midori House. The time here in London is 18.18. Coming up next, Germany tries once more to face its immigration issues and... Will the latest instalment of Mission Impossible have us all climbing the walls? Stay with us. Summer is finally here, and so is Monocle's bumper July-August double issue. This is when we zero in on quality of life and cities, why we love them, what makes them actually work, and how they need to improve. As always, we reveal our ranking of the top 25 cities to live in worldwide. Find out if your city makes the cut. And for the first time, we present our manifesto for creating a more relaxed city. A guide to breathing in and lightening up. And a celebration of everything from taking your kit off to making a bit of a racket. 
In the affairs pages, we meet the urban heroes giving back to their hometowns. While in design, we take a closer look at greenery in the city and how to do it right. Elsewhere, we take a dip in Geneva's top swimming spot, we tuck into some northern Spanish grub, and we sit down for a mass with the locals in a few Bavarian beer gardens. Prost! That's all in the July-August issue of Monocle on newsstands everywhere now. Or head to monocle.com to become a subscriber. It's 18.19 here in London. You're listening to Midori House with me, Emma Nelson. Still with me in the studio, Malcolm Chartrogli and Matt Allegoa and Josh Fennett. Now, could Germany at long last get an immigration law to please all political parties? The Labour minister, Hubertus Heil, wants to make it much easier for highly qualified people to be able to come to work in Germany. And it has the potential to solve the country's imminent skills crisis. Matt, this imminent skills crisis is something that I think a lot of people have, have been surprised by, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't think of Germany as being a place where you're not going to be able to find skilled workers. But there are 1.2 million uh, jobs open, apparently, in the country. And companies are very keen for uh, the the immigration law to be changed just so they can get a few more uh, skilled immigrants in to take these these positions. Um, it does sound like Germany's immigration law is, is a bit crazy. I mean, it's, it's it runs to 107 paragraphs, apparently. And um, there's only workers, really, who hold a blue card, which is the European Union's immigration scheme. They can get in relatively easy, but then everyone else is sort of uh, there's, there's sort of bureaucracy all over the place with it. Um, I do think though this is he's going to have a hard time changing this because I mean if we row back just a little bit, I think um, the background to this is that obviously Germany had an uh, an election last year and. Angela Merkel had to create a, a sort of grand coalition to keep uh, to create a government and keep the country sort of moving. Um, and part of it is that you know the AfD, the alternative for Deutschland, has been so successful. And I, I think that shows that Germany, like so many other countries, opposi- opposition to immigration in the country is really growing at quite an alarming rate. So the idea that she's going to be Angela Merkel's going to be able to convince some of her coalition partners that they can do this new immigration law, I think, might not work. It's very difficult. To- to work out exactly what which way Germany wants to go, um, given the fact that when you read around this subject just a slightly bit, tiny bit, one headline says, you know, German employment minister bucks Europe trend and calls for more immigration. OK, understood, we have a skills shortage. Secondly, German Germany toughens approach on migrants as EU struggles for unity. They're being pulled in all different sorts of directions, not just politically internally, but everybody is looking to Germany to say, OK, how are you going to deal with all your migration problems? Absolutely. But then when the government is so weak, everyone looks, everyone in the EU 27 looks at Germany and says, I mean, hang on, are we going to be led just by one Bavarian party or something like that? You know, so the the, the grand coalition is Merkel's CDU, the CSU, which is a tiny, well, it's not tiny, but it's in, it's only focused in Bavaria and it's a much more right wing party than her CSU, uh, CDU. And then the SPD, which is a much more left wing party. So this immigration um, law has been written up by, um, yeah, the SPD. Labour minister. So he's obviously a bit more immigration friendly, but I can't imagine him getting this past the CSU. Malcolm, this issue of each nation across Europe at the moment struggling with the idea of um, having to deal with who to let in to do what jobs is something that so many countries are having to wrestle with at the moment. It's what prompted Brexit after all. Yes, but let's not forget that Germany's population is somewhat shrinking. And this isn't the sort of immigration that people have a right to be 
you know, angry and frustrated by it. This isn't uh, refugees fl flooding into the cities, which understandably ignites some sort of furor among certain sectors of the population. These are skilled workers who are filling a, a, an existing gap. I mean, Germany also has an industrial duty to the rest of the world. It's a hugely industrial nation. It needs to maintain its output. Therefore, it has to fill the work some way. And it's not a case of, oh, uh, German workers are going to be forgotten about and, you know, jobs will be handed over to, you know, to, to, to Spanish immigrants. It's a very much a case of meritocracy. Um, so I think it's a very sensible idea. Um, it, and it should have been implemented, I think, a, a long time ago. It's a very complicated thing to get your head around when forever we've all been taught that German education prepares you not just academically, but if you so choose, you can go into a vocational course which will make you a brilliant engineer. And, and you know, top engineers are revered as highly as top surgeons. Um, Josh, just the idea of there being a genuine shortage. Um, are we sort of suddenly realising that the German dream of great education, great opportunity, a job in the Mittelstand actually might not be what we all hoped it was? I'm not sure. I, 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 I'm not sure in, t in two senses because uh, I, I think the, the German way of doing education is one that we should look into in lots of other countries. I think not everyone should go to university and the numbers of people going to university in other countries is soaring and I don't think that means that there are much much more skilled people going on. It's just the same person hasn't learnt a particular craft. But I want to draw on one story this week which I think draws attention to um, what I think is going on here a little bit. This is a political wrangle. This is a, 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 an internal politics thing. And it's very easy to talk about people in terms of groups of people, skilled labor, unskilled labor. The protest this week by the uh, Swedish student in the um, on a plane in Gothenburg to not let someone leave her country because she thought they were being unfairly removed, I think brings it back to the fact that these are all kind of human stories as well. So great if Germany can sort out its labor market there is a bigger question in Europe going on for which people are looking to Germany as well, which is how we deal with the unprecedented migration that's going on and the, and the troubles that it's causing. So great if they can be more productive from it, but I think there needs more needs to come from Germany and other answers need to be sought as well. This is one of the suggestions that was made a couple of years ago, wasn't it, when Verschaffendas was said by Angela Merkel, we'll take them on, we'll, we'll deal with it. And everyone said, this is great because in 10 years' time we'll have a massive labour shortage, we'll train up these, these, these refugees. It hasn't happened. No, and I mean, I, I think it's been shown, and as much as I was was very, you know, on on Merkel's side of that, it's been shown that that was a, a bad decision, decision actually, or, or at least badly managed, because it that is one of the main decisions, and it's one of the main reasons why the AfD is doing so well, because they can point to a mainstream party and a mainstream politician like Angela Merkel and say, look, she led in one million refugees, like. That is that that that's effectively what they were able to you know point at and say she's not looking out for for Germans, and I think you know it's it's one of those problems that lots and lots of countries across Western Europe are dealing with at the moment, but it's also you know it, I think you need to be very careful before you you know let let in lots and lots of people, particularly if they're low skilled, because you're opening yourself up to the right wing. Okay, finally, there's is such a thing gentlemen as a Tom Cruise specific world record and it's just been broken. Mission Impossible Fallout and six million dollars in preview week. That's two million dollars more than Cruise's previous rollout of the Mission Impossible franchise two years ago which grossed a mere four million in previews. It's enough to prove that Mission Impossible is still worth making but is it still worth seeing? How is he? Oh you know same old Ethan. I find it best not to look.
I heard a screeching guitar there and an awful lot of loud music. It must be Mission Impossible. <laughs> Josh Fennis, it must be same old Ethan Hunt. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a strange item to end the show is, but it means we can sound off a little about it, doesn't it? Feel my, free. Uh, my, my hot take for the week is that... Um, it probably won't be worth watching, um, but one, <laughs> but 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 one but one thing that you can watch out for is is a bit of a trend as uh, depending on who you're asking, China overtakes the U.S. as the main uh, country that's generating box office hits. There's been a peculiar trend in the plot of films where we're getting a lot less dialogue, so the dubbing takes up less time. So I'm predicting more explosions. I'm predicting. Uh, you know, a few funny faces pulled and, uh, you know, mock surprise by all of the wonderful actors in it. Um, but I'm actually predicting a lot less dialogue, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad oh thing. Gosh, also, can so I, cynical. <laughs> can, 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 I give you, can I give you some uh, Mission Impossible trivia that I'd relates to it. Monocle? What? Do what? You want, do you want to guess what it is? We're a gog. OK, well, uh, Monocle's technology correspondent, David Phelan, had a very early brush with technology as an actor in the very first Mission Impossible film. Wow. He gets blown up. I believe. Well, what? glad that he had. Mon- Is he in the car? <laughs> in what context? He's not in the car. I think okay. he's um he's he's he runs after someone with a phone on a train, uh, which then explodes. So uh, <gasps> glad he's pulled monocle- himself back together again Excellent. and doesn't make a mess on the monocle carpet. Um, <laughs> Malcolm, I mean, there are so many blockbusters and so many remakes. Who cares? I uh, yes. I mean, what, what else is there to say? Fast and Furious is another example. I mean, how many have they turned out now? I think eight or seven. They, they literally just use the same bankable actors and produce films for, you know, audiences who do want, yeah, beautifully choreographed fight scenes and they might enjoy it for an hour and a half, but does it contribute anything to cinema? No, not at all. It's literally a question of can we make money? So in the minute that we've got left, gentlemen, Mission Impossible, whatever the new thing is, um, is two and a half hours long. It's a hot summer what? night. What do you do in those two and a half hours instead, Matt Alligar? I'm going to go and watch Mission Impossible. I, honestly, I think, I think it might be good. Well, come on. You can't I, be serious. I've got to stick up for it. Someone's got to stick up for it. Okay, Josh Fennett? I'm going to rewatch the first one for a snippet of David Phelan. <laughs> okay, and Malcolm and Charles Rockley in two and a half hours. I'm going to try to ignite or get a barbecue going in this stormy weather. Don't do it on grass. There have been health warnings. It will, it Noted. will cause all manner of problems in the heat wave. <laughs> that brings us to the end of today's show. Matt Allegar, Josh Fennett and Malcolm and Charles thank you very much for joining us here on a Friday Midori House. Today's show was produced by Fernando Agusta Pacheco, who's off to the cinema. It was researched by Julia Webster and Paula Schulzer, and our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next, and at 1900, it's the menu with Marcus Hitt and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time on Monday. That's 1800 London time. I'm Emma Nelson from all of us here in Studio One. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Music.